Wendy, thank you so much for reading our scripture this morning. Um, so, uh, good morning, church. Welcome. It's good to see your faces once again. Um, I don't know if you know this, but in, in Hebrew, the word presence uh, literally means your face. So when we experience presence with one another, we're face to face. So I know you guys are all side to side looking forward to me. So, um, so I know you're not really experiencing full-on presence with one another at this very moment, but I get to experience presence with you on like the most uh, intense level, which could be a little intimidating at sometimes. But but I am grateful to share presence with you this morning. So um, we are continuing our Summer of Psalms series, and if uh, and if you're like, what, is, what does that have to do with like what is that all about? It's summer, and we're going through the Psalms, Summer of Psalms. See how creative we are. Um, we have been taking just one Psalm a week. And we have just been immersing ourselves in the world of poetic imagery and metaphor in order for us to to see the truth of God and his love for us and his his care and provision and, and salvation through the lens of human experience and emotion. And as we do this, we're actually learning how Uh, a new way to pray. We're learning a new way to pray because because as we engage in this this lens, this realm of human emotion or experience, we're stepping away from this area that says prayer is about having an ordered, structured way of communicating thoughts and ideas or partitions or something to God. And it's more of that saying, God, emotionally, here's where I'm at. I'm either exploding with joy, I am drowning in sorrow. Uh, there are there's these passages in Psalms about my bed is, is oversaturated with tears. I, the imagery that you get when you, when you open up the, the, um, the scripture to see a prayer like that is one of the most honest, vulnerable, intimate things that we can do. And how often do we allow ourselves up op- to open up to that that? level of vulnerability and intimacy with the God of the universe? Or do our prayers tend to keep him at arm's length and say, God, I'm comfortable with you up to here, and beyond that point, I'm not so sure. The Psalms are our way of just blowing the doors right past that, of saying, no, God, we're going to experience vulnerability with you. We're 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 going to present ourselves to you as we fully are. We're going to hit this part today where it says that, that God knows us more than we know ourselves. And sometimes the Psalms are just our way of just acknowledging that God actually knows us better than we know ourselves. And so as we're praying, we are, we're able to now exercise new muscles in, in the act of seeking God and trusting him and following him and loving him. And believing in him. And so the Psalms are this this way of exercising, not not muscles, but really exercising a part of the soul that can lie dormant. And as this gets awakened within us, we are awakening a renewed and a refreshed desire to follow after his heart. So that's really our goal with the Psalms for the summer. So if you were hoping for something nice and light and easy, I'm sorry. We don't do that here. We just don't. Um, I'm, yeah, 
I'm, I, yeah, that's not going to happen here. Um, so we're going to take the next two weeks. Uh, I said we're doing one psalm a week, and I, I fibbed a little bit because we're actually doing one psalm over the next two weeks uh, today. And, and we're going to be exploring Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and open them up to Psalm 51, and then, uh, and then stick your finger in it, and then go over to 2 Samuel 11, because that's actually where we're going to start today. But uh, Psalm 51 is this window into the soul of King David, and, and we are invited to just peer through that today and look into this heart. And what we're doing is we have been given permission by the psalmist, to trace this, this path of spiritual transformation. What does it happen? Like how are we changed when we come face to face with a holy God? Now, David has this title that we have uh, affixed to him that, that for many Christians kind of venerates him to like this point of sainthood, this kind of almost perfection that we say, man, I wish I could be like David. And, and for David, for many, he is like the model of, of godliness and devotion and faithfulness. Now, early on in Israel's history, uh, the nation was led by a prophet, this man of God who, who knew the heart of God and who heard his voice and, and spoke on God's behalf. And that was how Israel was essentially run. They were run by God speaking into the prophet, the prophet speaking to Israel, and Israel responding and acting accordingly. Well, eventually, uh, Israel, Israel changed their mind. They started pushing for a king, a ruler who would represent not God's strength, but man's strength and, and power of the nation to other nations. In other words, they no longer wanted to be a nation ruled by God. They wanted to be a nation ruled by a man. And even though the prophet said, you guys do not want a man being your king because he's going to enslave your, your family, he's going to conscript you to do his deeds, he's going to steal all, take all your money, it's, you don't want it. And they said, no, other nations have them, that's what their understanding of power is, we want the same thing. Give us a, give us a, a king. Give us a human king. And so the man that they appointed was that kind of king. Uh, he was this large and powerful and strong ruler, but he was also selfish and moody and violent and not, not at all a king who would lead Israel after the good things of their God. And so the prophet, this name Samuel, he comes back on the scene and he says, Yahweh has provided a new king for Israel, one that is a man after Yahweh's own in other words, a man whose life and faith will, will, and will are, are so closely aligned with God's, whose actions are going to mirror the nature and character of God, and who seeks to please God in everything that he does. Now keep in mind, when, when Samuel speaks this word to say, God has chosen a new king, a man after Yahweh's own heart, this is before he's even met. 
David's name hasn't even been mentioned yet in the Bible except for um, the one genealogical reference in the book of Ruth. That's the extent of David's time yet in the Bible. And so when he says there's a man after God's own heart, there's this curious this thing that happens in the Bible where, 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 where they have done absolutely nothing to fit the description that's given to them, and yet they have it. Think about Abraham. Abraham believes, and it is credited to him as righteous. He is called a righteous man. But, but what did Abraham do? What did David do to earn these titles? Uh, there is no special, if you, like, if you were to look at, at Abraham or you were to look at David as they were when these titles were handed to them, what is so special about them? They have no special aptitude. They're, they're not strong particular men. It's not about their spirit or their, their intellect or their, their cunningness. The only thing that marks them for, for purpose in the kingdom of God is a willing heart. It's literally the only thing. It's the only thing that God puts and says, yes, that qualifies you to serve in my kingdom. A willing heart. Abraham believed it was counted as righteousness. David was willing to go wherever God would lead him to go, and that desire to follow aligned his will up with Yahweh. A willingness to, that leads to a total surrender is what God is looking for, and that's, that's it. All you have to do is just hand your whole entire life over to God. No big deal. That's all you have to do. Now, were these men perfect? Not at all. And in fact, both Abraham and David did things that most of us would, like if you were to stop and think about it, would actually consider disqualifications for membership in our own churches. And... and there are probably a few churches who, when if heard what Abraham and David did, would, would probably struggle to admit them at all and say, I don't think you're ready to be part of our community. But what about Abraham? Abraham listened to God and it was credited to him. He was a hero of the faith. He became a father of nations. What about Abraham? Yeah, and he also prostituted his wife twice. And he abandoned his firstborn son. I mean, this is Abraham, the, the, the father of God's chosen people. And he did this after it said God counted him as righteousness. And it, it also says that he, he did these things after God sent him on a journey to settle a great nation. Now, it was before he prostituted his wife out before God made a covenant promise to him. But then he also did it afterwards. So... I, when we look at a guy like Abraham, he's not a guy that we would consider as a role model of Christian virtue and holiness. And yet here he is. But what about David? Surely the man after God's own heart, he wouldn't let us down, would he? Now there's this header at the start of Psalm 51 that says, A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. And, and that's actually part of the inspired word of God, by the way. Those, those titles up at the end, that's part of our Hebrew scripture. It's, it's not just added in by our English texts. That's part of the inspired word of God. So the psalmist here is introducing the context behind this 
prayer poem and the reason why it is sung. And so what, if, if you have your Bibles open to Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 11, go ahead and pull back to those. And I'm just going to be, you can read along as I kind of summarize the story for us this morning. So all of the soldiers of Israel, they are, they're out at war, and, and, they are, and they're crushing it, by the way. They destroy the Ammonites, besiege Rabbah. And David, as the, he doesn't need to go out to every battle, so he stays behind in Jerusalem. And so David is, is uh, hanging back at his, in his palace, and he's, he's on his rooftop, which is the highest rooftop of all the rooftops, because it's the palace. You don't get rooftops higher than the palace. So he's wandering around at night, and he looks over, and he sees, probably through a window, I don't think she was bathing on the rooftop, but he sees this beautiful woman who is, who is, uh, is bathing. And she's, she's going through her, her purification rites, which are part of ritual purity for women that meant that basically when you, when you go on your cycle, you have to bathe and avoid touching anything, or else all those things are unclean. And, and that's really weird and strange, but there's a point to it. So if you want to read about that point, you can go to Leviticus 15. So good homework for the week, right? So anyways, uh, this woman, Bathsheba, or Bathsheba, she is going through her, her ritual purity rites, cleansing herself from the uncleanness that came as a result of uh, her, her period. It's a little bit twisted now when you start to think about the story. So David looks out and he says, who is that? And they say, oh, it's Bathsheba. That's the wife of Uriah. He's one of your soldiers. And so he's out to war, of course. So, so David in, invites her uh, in, in, into his palace and he sleeps with her and he gets her pregnant. And so already by this time, you're like, this story about the man of God has already kind of gone off the rails just a little bit, Right? This man after God's own heart, we go, ah, this seems a little bit backwards from what I'm, I would think. The ethical, moral version of the hero David is what I'm expecting to read. And I'm like, that's not what I'm seeing right here. So it, and, and it gets worse, by the way. It gets worse. So this woman, Bathsheba, she finds she's, she's pregnant, and so she, she sends word to the king. And, and what's by this point... If you're familiar with Levitical law, I don't expect you to be, but there are all of these like ritual purity laws that, that come into play here, and they have violated multiple sexual purity laws. They have committed adultery with one another outside of marriage. Uh, they have defiled the, um, the, the un- they've touched another while unclean. There's all kinds of different things that have, have happened here. And so uh, the, the, the dishonoring of that marriage covenant, the dishonoring of God's covenant, uh, in, in, according to their laws, both David and Bathsheba should be sentenced to death. That is the, the response to such a crime as what they have committed. Because God's nation is so pure, so holy, so set apart for the good things of God, set apart to uphold uh, men and women as created in the image of God, not to be used for selfish purposes and gains, not to be dishonored of marriage and to treat that as less or lower, and they have both broken that covenant. And so God's kingdom says to be made pure, they should both be sentenced to death. And I realize that 
that this week as I read through that, much of what David does in response to this is, yes, self-protection, but it's also protecting of Bathsheba, right? For, her to, for him to, to, to go out and try to, to smooth things over and figure out a way get, to get through this, not just saves his own life, but saves the life of this woman as well. I feel like there's some good intentions there, but it's rooted in, it's, you can just see it's, it's gotten twisted and bent and just wrong by this point. So David does whatever he can. He brings Uriah back from battle, and he gets him drunk, and he tries to send him over to his wife's house so they'll sleep together, and then she can be pregnant, and then everybody's fine, right? All the laws have been kept, all the things, and everybody's, everybody's good. But Uriah is such a faithful soldier and servant. He's like, what? All of, my, all of my brothers are out at war risking their lives for our nation, and you want me to just eat and drink and go home to my wife? And just enjoy myself? No way. I'm going to sleep outside with your servants. And he does. Night after night. And David, like every time, is trying to send him home. Just get home. And he won't go home. He just keeps sleeping outside. Because because his brothers brothers are faithfully fighting for their kingdom. And he 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 does not want to dishonor that commitment, promise that he's made. David's heart just keeps, like the knife just keeps twisting on him, yeah? So finally, David has no choice left. He sends Uriah out to the front lines and arranges it so that Uriah is certain to be killed. He says, he says to his captain, he says, go up to where the fighting is toughest and then draw back really fast so that he'll die. Well, what ends up happening in the story is that they go to where the fighting is fiercest and they draw back, and Uriah dies, but so do multiple other men. Like, lots of men die because they were intentionally put into harm's way unnecessarily so that Uriah will be killed, but in addition, many innocent men are also killed. Just because David needs to cover up his guilt to try and be maintain some sense of reputation and to save his own skin. David trades several faithful men's lives for his and his paramour. David, the good, godly, inspiring king, is also an adulterer, a deceiver, and a murderer. Some of the most idealized models of Christian faithfulness have fallen harder and more perversely than most of us ever have or could ever dream. And so what God does is he sends a prophet to confront David about this failure, and he says, that son that you guys have conceived, he will not survive. And from this time forward, if you, if you finish out the book of 2 Samuel, David's reign just kind of goes downhill. And the once proud and strong king over Israel gets broken. And David writes Psalm 51. So that's the story. And, and so now what we're going to read is, is the process where God takes a once powerful, proud, and seemingly invincible man. And he just utterly transforms him and his entire life. 
And so uh, what I ask you today is to simply just hold this up as a mirror to your own heart to see where God needs to, to break you down and renew your life. Because if you want to follow Jesus and, and make followers of Jesus wherever he would lead you to, there are moments where sometimes the here has to be broken down and destroyed so that the there becomes possible. So if you have your Bibles, flip them back over, Psalm 51. So the psalmist is going to trace these four stages of spiritual transformation, this process that allows the frail, fallen, and messed up human beings to somehow follow a perfect and holy God. And so um, what we're going to do today is we're just going to do stage one, and then we'll do the next three stages next week. And, and, and yeah, that seems like a lot, but stage one is over half of the passage, so um, or, or at least half the passage. So we are going to, we're going to start with verses 1 through 9 this week, and we're going to finish it out next week. So if you have your Bibles, verse 1, Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. So the first stage is this, this pattern of confession. The first stage details this pattern of confession. And, and verses 1 through 9 form what's called a, a chiasm, which is this fancy word for a poem where the outside lines of the poem talk about the same thing and that the lines on the inside talk about uh, something that's parallel with one another and then so on and so on until you get to the very center of that poem. And the central part of that poem is the main idea of the poem. And that's, that's uh, different from our writing because in English we tend to think very linearly, right? We either start at the beginning and say, most important thing here, and then this is why. Or we say, here's all the details, therefore this must be our answer, right? But we're used to saying the most important thing is either at the front or the end. And in Hebrew, the most important thing is dead center, right? In the middle. And it's almost like what's in the middle has the most weight to it, the most gravity. So much so, in fact, that everything else around it like hover, like, is like a solar system where it, it revolves around the center. And it's getting pulled and sucked into the middle to say this is really what it's all about. So actually today, we're actually going to work through Psalms 1 through 9 in that way. We're going to start with the middle, and we're going to work our way out to the ends. Yeah? That'll be fun. It'll be different. 
All right. So, so here's what it looks like. So here's what the passage could basically be looked like. It's blot, wash, and cleanse, and then acknowledge, confess, and then bam, God is righteous and blameless. That's the big idea of what everything is all about. In confession, that's where we start. So what we're going to do is, like I said, we're going to work our way from the inside out. We're going to start with the main idea, the thing that everything is gravitating around and revolving around. And we're going to work our way to these outer, these outer orbs of thought. And so next week we're going to move on to the other three stages. But David spends half his time on this, so we're going to do the same. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pray, and then we are gonna, we're going to jump into this. Father, we just ask that you would... You would speak through uh, your word this morning, in your word and through your word. That it would convict hearts that struggle with this idea. And when I say people, I mean all of us. God, would you just motivate us towards this, this heart of confession, this, this motivation to put you front and center in our lives and allow us to, to take residence in the periphery. May our deepest and truest aim to be seeking your face. Thank you for what you're about to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the central idea of this poem, interestingly, has absolutely nothing to do with David. That's telling. Nothing to do with David, but everything to do with God. So, and this idea is going to be found at the end of verse 4. It says, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. That's directly in the middle of verses 1 through 9. The main point, the thing that everything revolves around, is that God is a God who speaks rightly and fairly. And he never makes a mistake when enacting judge, justice. He is a good God, and he is a good judge. Now, one of the things we're going to find as we work our way through this confession is that David uses a lot of cultic language. And, and by that, I don't mean that David is in a cult. What I mean here is that David is going to go back to these patterns of, of ritual purification in the book of Leviticus, this law book that's right in the front of your Bibles that I bet most of us have skipped over every time we try to read the Bible. Uh, with a name like Leviticus, why would you even want to read it, right? So, uh, and if you've attempted to work your way through the Bible, uh, as I have, it's most likely it ends up going something like this. We go Genesis, Exodus, uh, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Because those are the fun books. Those are the stories with the battles and the fights and the drama and the intrigue and the, the scandal. There's no thing scandalous about these other books. They're lists of laws and rules and regulations and rites of purification that are weird and boring and they seem to have absolutely nothing to do with us. So we, like to, we just like to skip over to the front part. We, we like to hear stories about God like stopping the sun right in the middle of the day. Or, or we like to read stories about God turning fleeces over from from, from dry to wet, while ever the ground is, is flip-flopped. We, we love hearing stories about that, but let me tell you what. 
Some of the most significant passages in the entire Bible are found in those books. And so if you skip out on these books, you might miss out on on some of the keys to understanding the whole thing. Don't skip out. That was my just my one little throw out there. Don't skip over those books. All right. So here's the first thing. David starts out by declaring. He declares who just who his God is and how holy his God is. He says, "My God is not fickle. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't err in judgment. He doesn't lie or speak untruths." My God is not selfish or unfair or unjust. No, he is pure and blameless and right and good in every way, every time. He is the most beautifully and unquestionably pure and good being in the universe. And everything that he creates is good. And everything that he decrees is good. Everything that he speaks is good because he is that good. And that God is therefore just categorically different from every other God of every other nation that's out there. I mean, other gods in, in, from these other nations, they are transcendently powerful and capable. If you can read some of the stories uh, of, that they speak about their gods, they sound very strong and very powerful. But they're also selfish and and megalomaniacal, they're fickle beings, they're violent and bloodthirsty, cruel gods. And you serve a god like the, the god of the Babylonians with terror and anxiety, not of trust and of gratitude and humility and peace. David declares, my God, he is greater than any other god, any human, any created being. He is the source of all beauty and righteousness and goodness. He is utterly holy. Now, it all goes downhill from there through in the rest of the poem, but, but at the outset, what declaring does in confession is it puts God in his rightful place at the center of everything as the source of all good, and as the benchmark against which our own humanity and actions and and thoughts and our holiness are going to be measured and and found wanting. So in this pattern of confession, like I said, just begin with declaring who your God is. Who is this God? Is he, why is he worth following? Why is he worth believing? What is he all about? Because if you don't start here, if you don't start with, who is this God and how, how is he holy, then why would you even need to confess? Why would, what, why would you need to be confessing? Because if, he, if, you don't, if you think he's like the other nation's gods, or if you don't really think that he is, uh, has to be your God, or, or that you don't even think he exists, then you are on your own. And your standard is the standard, and, and it, it doesn't matter what you do. You're, however this life shakes out is kind of up to you. Now, I'll tell you this right now. If that's your perspective, that it's really just about whatever my vision of the good life is and it doesn't, God's vision doesn't really matter, then I will going to tell you that your vision for the life 
is far too small, far too limited, and it's going to be pretty sad. It's not going to be the abundance of grace and compassion and kindness that God offers you. It's not the full scope of your humanity that you were meant to have. So if you are here, though, my prayer is that you have come at least seeking a God that is more than that, or that you have become convinced and convicted that he is who he says he is. And if so, this whole process, which will make sense soon, is about starting with God, giving God the credit and pride of place that he deserves. God first, I am second. So if the central, so think of the central idea, I kind of mentioned the solar system before. So like if the central idea of this passage is about declaration, like declaration is the sun, then what's Mercury going to be, right? What's right on the outside? Mercury would be like confession. So declaration and then confession. You declare, then you confess. Uh, So we're going to read verses 4, like the first part of 4a, and then we're going to read verse 5 because these are just outside of that central line. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. So David starts, like I said, he puts this utterly holy and and completely good God right at the center of of everything. And once once he does that, David also has to make a, a second claim, one that gravitates around the center. God, you are in the center. You are the most holy being, and I... I'm not. If you are the most holy and, and perfectly good thing that there is, then I, I'm not. I'm not that good. I'm not a good judge. I have not spoken fairly or judged rightly. David then goes and he describes these three terms for sin. There's, there's three uh, words for, for sin or, or, or of those things that are objectionable or incompatible with a, with a blameless God. And David says, I am all three. I am all three. I am Pesha, which means I, I have rebelled against you and I have violated your trust in me. He says, I am, I am Chata'ah. I have, I have fallen short of your standard of love for people. I have chosen to honor my selfish desires at the expense of others. And then he says, I am alone. I am a twisted and messed up person, crooked in my thought patterns and actions. I am misdirected in my very way of life. In English, our Bibles might say, I have guilt, I have rebellion, I have sinned. I have violated your trust. I have have fallen short of the standard of goodness that you gave me. God, I am, there is something within me that is broken and messed up. And I can't really explain it, but it it twists me up. I am just like predisposed towards broken and messed up relationships. I I am, there is something within me that, that, 
doesn't trust people, that, that struggles to believe when I'm told something, that I struggle with the fact that, that, that this thing is good and yet, and, and all I have to do is go this way, and yet there's something within me, some bent that I have that says go this way instead. David uses words for sin 12 times in nine verses. And he uses God's name twice. Where right now is David focused? Where is David, like his, his conviction, is focused on how broken he is in light of this perfectly holy God? Now, interestingly, when we get next week, we'll actually see that number is reversed. We'll see that sin fades into the background and God becomes very prevalent and very a big part of the picture. But right now, David is having to come when he sees, when he, is, when he seeks first a beautifully holy and good God, he is forced to reckon with the fact that he fails to measure up in comparison. And, and, and what happens here is that there is this objectionable stain to him. He has been stained stained with sin, and it marks him, and it makes him unclean and unfit for any relationship with a holy God. He cannot be in the presence of God, and like it or not, God has hidden his face from him because of how unclean he is. It prevents him from a real relationship with his father, and it devastates him. Now, I was thinking about this idea of objectionable stains. If this is our, our, like a good definition for sin. And, and, and uh, I, I thought about this illustration. Uh, my youngest son, Henry, he's four years old, and he has been learning to go to the bathroom all by himself. And you might think, oh, that's not a big deal. But for us, it's a major milestone in our, in our household because we have been, um, we have been uh, wiping and flushing and cleaning and washing children for 11 years now. And, and the fact that we may never have to do that again until it's their turn for us is amazing. So we are so looking forward to this stage of our life. No longer are we the ones who have to, like, you can go to the bathroom all by yourself, buddy. It's amazing. So um, the joys of being a parent of a million kids like I do. So, um, so, so he is, he's taken, and when he comes out of the bathroom, he's like, I went all by myself, and we're like, you are awesome, buddy. That's the most amazing thing. We are so excited that you went to the bathroom on your own and I didn't have to help you. Um, and then the second question is this. Did you wash your hands? And he pauses and he looks up and he's like this smirk travels across his face. And then he just turns and bolts back for the bathroom because he always forgets to wash his hands. And so we're like, why don't you come back and then wash your hands and then we'll come and celebrate because... Until you wash your hands, it's great that you went to the bathroom and all that, but until you wash your hands, I'm not going to let you touch any of my food. I'm not going to let you touch my face. I'm not going to let you touch anything in the house because what your dirty, dirty grimy, germ-infested hands are now doing is spreading them throughout everything. And, and, and the, whatever is on your hands is now going to be on my kitchen table. It's going to be on my, my pillow. It's going to be on my face. 
It's going to be in my food, and I don't want it. That stain on your hands is objectionable to me. I, I object to it being a part of my life because it's gross, and it'll make me sick, and it'll make the rest of my family sick, and I don't want it. So you have to go wash your hands. And my four-year-old does understand this. He goes, yes, I need to wash my hands. So that doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for us to have hands that have not been washed clean. Now you're getting where we're going with this, right? If there is a God who is this gracious and compassionate, loving God, who seeks after your good and he judges rightly and fairly, and he is inviting you into relationship with him, and he is celebrating the fact that you are growing and maturing and, and growing deeper in your commitment and faith to him and saying, yes, I do want to follow you. I do want to have a deeper relationship with you. I do want to be exactly who you, were, who, uh, you created me to be, this fully abundantly human who is experiencing this eternal life with you. And yet we run into these scenarios where something happens or something has happened to us or a mess gets made. And, and, and we keep stumbling over ourselves. It prevents us from getting to this goal of right relationship. Now, those, those things might be different. Is it, is it because you feel like you have to do everything yourself to make your own mark, to be your own person, to, to carve your own way? Or do you feel like you want to be right with God, but you keep missing the mark? You keep stumbling over yourself, and you're just falling short all the time. Or do you feel like there is just something within you, something broken, something that's not right, and it makes you incompatible and, and unfit for relationship with this God. And if you are truly honest with yourself, like David is here, then you will likely come to the conclusion that it's all three of those things. It's all three. I have pursued selfishness. I have tried but failed. And I and I constantly run into my own human limitations that say, I, I want to do this way. I, I keep going here, and I can't explain it. So this is silent confession time. But what is it that trips you up, that stains your hands, that hinders relationship with God and others, and that objects to the life that you were meant to live? First, we put God in his place, his rightful place, and then we confess where we don't measure up to that. Now, before we move on to the next step, I just want you to notice something profound here. David, what is David doing? He's writing in reflection of this sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against all of his soldiers, against the people of his kingdom even, and against his God. But, but notice what David confesses. Against you, you alone, I have sinned. Now, wait a second. If David is in this moment of confession, he's saying, I, 
the only, against you and you alone I have sinned. What does that mean with all these other people with whom he's broken relationship and messed everything up? Uh, Tim Keller writes this amazing devotional on the Psalms, and he's, this is how he says. He says, this happens because it is because sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process, but you will be tried for treason because you have betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It is overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. Now, our confession to God might, may, it should lead to confession to others for violating their trust, for betraying their relationships, for causing pain and hurt and humiliation. But it starts with the Creator. It starts with the one to whom you owe everything. So first we declare, and then we confess. Third, as we're radiating out from this, this center, this holy center, we start with declare, then confess, and then we acknowledge. We acknowledge. Verse 3 and verse 6, getting further out into the, the orbit here. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. And David is using this language of, of, of realization and knowledge. He's saying here, he's saying, not only have I sinned, but now I know that I have sinned. It's one thing to say, yeah, I have sinned. It's another to say, I know I have sinned. And it's another thing yet to say, I know that I have sinned, and also I know that you know that I have sinned. There's a, there's a subtle difference to that. It's one thing to say, I know I have sinned, but do you? might be better if you don't, right? It's better for me. It's easier for me. If I know my sins, but you don't know my sins. It keeps us a little more, it gives us a good healthy distance and balance, right? It allows me to continue building my own kingdom or having my own, uh, having my reputation intact or having... Uh, having people still continue to think well of me. As long as I know what I have done, but you don't know what I have done. David here is saying, I know what I have done. But not only that, I know that you know what I have done. Nathan, uh, the prophet, that comes to, to David in Second Samuel, he comes before him and he tells him this. He, he starts... Like, he walks up to, to David. The story is fascinating to me. And he starts telling him this story about a wealthy man who owns lots of sheep and cattle and goats and everything. And, and his neighbor owns one sheep. His neighbor has one sheep. But that sheep he loves. And they, they feed it and they let it inside the house and it sleeps on their bed. And he, he cares for it like it's a member of their family. And the prophet Nathan, he says, so uh, this, the, the rich man, he has a guest come over. And he looks out at his flock and he says, I don't want to use any of these. So he takes the neighbor's goat, or the neighbor's sheep, and he kills that sheep, and he feeds it for, for simply for the pleasure of, uh, for the purpose of, of pleasure and merriment. Because his own, he'd, he, he'd rather not, he'd rather sacrifice the beloved 
sheep of his neighbor. And David just blows up from it. He's like, that man needs to pay back five sheep for, for his lost sheep. He needs to restore him to full, like, whoever this guy did was a jerk. And he, did, he deserves to be paid back, like, for what he did. And God, through Nathan, very simply says, David, that was you. You're that man. You're the guy. That's it. And it's in this moment David realizes that, that this sin that he thought was hidden and secret and safe is no longer hidden and secret and safe. Not by other men. His, his, the reputation from the outside seems still pristine. But God has seen the inner self, the depths of God's soul, of David's soul, and he has discovered not truth and, and, and trust, but hypocrisy and rebellion. So this here in, in verse 3 and 6 is, is, is David's way of telling his God, I'm no longer putting that sin behind me where I cannot see it, where I claim ignorance that it's there. I, this is me putting it forward, exposing my flaws, my brokenness, and my rebellion. You already knew this, God, now I am certain of it. I just recognize that in your presence. There's something curious that happens when we make God the center of our confession. Now, see, if I am the center of my confession, that means that I am the judge of what is sin and what is just me being me, right? So, you know, it, and it leans me to ask the questions of like, well, is it really that bad that I lied or I stole or neglected my family or lusted after that woman or harbored anger? I mean, it's not like I embezzled from the U.S. government. It's not like I committed outright treason. It's not like I murdered or actually committed any kind of adultery, right? If I am the center of my confession, then I am going to scale up the degree of confessible sin in order to scale down my own actions, my thoughts, my decisions, and, and make them justifiable, make them, make them acceptable in some weird way. So, and as a result, I judge uh, myself as right and fair and conscionable. Well, I rarely give other people the benefit of the doubt. When God is at the center, his holiness is the standard against which I am judged. And if that's the case, then I have no other response but to admit that what I am and what I have done, as much as I could try to justify, as much as I try to hide, as much as I try to pretend that those things aren't a big deal, they are not what God wants me to be or do. He is God, I am not. So acknowledgement is an admission, not just to God, but to yourself. When you give God his rightful place, you will find you have been put in your own place as well. So acknowledge your guilt. How have you been dishonest with you? Where do you need to speak truth to yourself? What do you need to recognize about you that you have been ignoring for a while? We declare, we confess, and then we acknowledge. 
The final step, that outer ring of confession, is to plead. To plead. To ask for help. So now we're all the way on the outer, outer rings. Verse 1 says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Purify me, verse 9, with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. David is left with this one request. He is, I have no other, like, I I recognize I am not worthy of asking anything but this. Would you cleanse me, wash me, blot away these stains that make me objectionable in your sight? David doesn't ask, it's curious, he doesn't ask for forgiveness like we're used to hearing. Because forgiveness, in our minds, is usually the idea of either canceling a debt that we owe that needs to be repaid, or uh, in Exodus, it's about this idea of bearing the weight of a burden of sin that crushes down on us. And yet David uses, again, temple sacrifice language here. God, would you speak a word that will purify me Clean me. Remove the stain of my sin sickness. Not because I have earned it, not because I am entitled to it, but because you are gracious, compassionate, full of faithful love and kindness. And I think it's it's I think it's actually really significant that in this in this prayer. David starts with himself, or with God, and then he moves to himself, and he ends with God. It's this pattern that says, God, you are holy and true. I fall well short of that. And I know that my core is is flawed. I'm not pretending anymore. And I know that I cannot, on my own, by my own strength or will or power, become holy enough or good enough to dwell with you in your presence. Or stand face to face with you. So, holy and compassionate, gracious, kind God, will you do the work that I cannot? Can you save me from this mess that I have made? From this bondage of sin, slavery that I find myself in? God is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. It's the, usually the middle where we try to take over, where we find ourselves in trouble. And there is no way out on your own. There's, there's no path forward that ends in self-earned victory for you. There is only total reliance on God. When my son was first learning to wash his hands, uh, he did not have the awareness, nor the dexterity, nor the height to actually perform this deed. He can't even reach the sink. Doesn't matter how many steps we give him. Can't do it, right? So, but, but the hands are still dirty. They still need to be washed. So what's the process for a child who, who understands stained hands make me objectionable to the world? They need to be washed, but I can't wash them. 
Oh, the, the lessons that can be learned from a two-year-old. They say, Daddy, I need help. All that they say. And so what's the process for us washing hands with my two-year-old? He needs his dad to pick him up, hold him on my knee, so that I can grab his hands and put them under the running water and rub them back and forth and lather them up with soap and then rinse them out and then dry them. There is no way that my two-year-old son could, could do any of that on his own. I only require one thing from him, that he hold out his dirty, smelly, grimy, germ-infested hands so that I can take a hold of them and, yes, for a moment, dirty my own hands, however temporarily, so that we both could be clean, so that relationship can continue. Pleading the art of admitting that you are not able to wipe the slate clean for yourself, that you are an unclean man, an unclean woman that has no part in the sacred presence of God is perhaps one of the hardest things that any of us will ever have to do because this step of all the steps requires a boldness and a humility just to merely hold out your unclean hands and ask that they be made clean. To ask, and this is, in my mind, one of the hardest parts, to ask that a holy God would make himself unclean, even for a moment, so that you can be unclean, or that you can be made clean together. We realize that, that, that our steps of being made clean, of having right relationship, requires, even for the smallest of moments, for the God of the universe to be made ritually impure and unclean. When Isaiah comes before God and God says, I have a message for you to bring, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips, what does God do? He takes a coal, he absorbs the uncleanliness of Isaiah and allows him to speak. When Jesus in the Gospels is walking through crowds and the woman who is ceremonially unclean and unfit to touch even his robes, remember, everything that she touches is unclean. Everything. And she goes and she touches his robes. She makes Jesus unclean. Jesus stops, turns, picks her up and voluntarily makes himself unclean and heals her. When he walks in and he confronts the, the, um, the, those who were inflicted with leprosy, this horrible skin disease that made them unclean, untouchable, and in fact, they would have to walk, anytime they walked into town, they'd have to raise their hands and say, unclean, unclean, so that everybody would clear major swaths of path so they could walk through because God forbid you would touch one of these, these unclean, impure people and receive uncleanliness on your own self. How dare they do that? Jesus walks up to them, touches them, and makes them clean. What happens when Jesus touches them? He becomes unclean. The only way this 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 
boggles my mind is that the only way, God, when he says, you are unclean, you must first be made clean. He does not say, go out and figure out a way to be clean. I, because I am so clean, I can't touch you. I'll wait for you to figure it out and then come back to me. And then we'll have a relationship. God makes the unclean clean by invading the unclean. And for even a moment, becoming unclean himself so that you can be made clean. boggles my mind. Jesus takes on the sins of the entire world. As faulty and as, as unclean as David has made himself out to be, to take on the sins of the entire world makes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a man who himself did no wrong, became ceremonially the most unclean human being that has ever existed. You wrap your heads around that. And the sacrifice that he makes removes once and for all that sense, that idea that we could ever approach a God because we are too unfit and objectionable. God makes, Jesus makes himself unfit and objectionable himself so that you can be fit for his relationship. All that he requires is for you to hold out your hand and say, I can't do this. It requires the faith of a two-year-old. That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Uh, I'm going to close with one more quote from Tim Keller. He's been kind of inspiring me lately. But, but Keller says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And that's the gospel. So with that in mind, knowing that what Jesus has done is a once-for-all cleansing process, that we would come and experience this process of confession in our approaching of the Father, that we would declare, confess, acknowledge, and plead, declare, who is this God? Why is he worth following? What is he all about? Confess, who am I? What do I struggle with? Why do I struggle to follow and, and where do I fall short? Acknowledge, how have I been dishonest with myself? Where, have I, where do I need to speak truth to myself? What do I need to recognize about me that I have been ignoring for so long? And plead, what in my heart needs to change? What needs to be wiped clean? Am I willing to start over, to begin again, to hand over my own plans so that God can provide me with a new foundation and a new vision for the good life? My encouragement to you this morning is to develop, develop is the wrong word, commit to a pattern of confession in your life. And to essentially just have the faith of a two-year-old. That's really where we're at.
I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite our worship team up, and we're going to close our morning together. God, may we just start.